the Gospel of John. Let's look at chapter 6. We'll read verses 16 through 21. Uh, again, as I said in the beginning, a little anomalous uh, kind of setting to imagine on a glorious sunny spring Sunday morning. We're going to read in chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or, uh, two or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Uh, in 1984, a tornado came through our neighborhood in Virginia, and it's an unforgettable experience, it's an unforgettable sight, uh, because the clouds look like they're tattered, swirling, black, they look like they're coming out of a belching furnace. And the sound's unforgettable. A tornado sounds like a train engine. It sounds like you're in the middle of an engine, churning and pumping and driving. And the sight is pretty unbelievable, especially when you walk through a forest with these huge trees. And there's a 30-foot swath that was just cut through the forest like some heavenly weed whacker came through and just wiped everything out. And uh, uh, the power is so tremendous. How should Christians look at tornadoes? How should Christians watch storms? And this text is telling us, not like anyone else. Out there on the street, they'll tell you that Christianity is essentially a way of behaving. It's a way of loving people. And of course it's that. But it's so much more. Christianity is a way of being, and therefore, Christianity is a way of seeing. Christianity gives you truths that you just don't look at. There's a kind of stagnant, uh, intellectual, dry, formal sort of religion that gives you doctrinal truths to look at. But vital Christianity tells you not only are you supposed to believe these truths, but you're supposed to see the world through the truths. You don't just look at them, you look at everything through them. And when you put them on like spectacles, they take a very blurry world and they, sh they throw it into sharp... Uh, it, it throws the world into sharp, vivid focus. Now, the truth that we're looking at today is this. Jesus Christ is Lord of the storm. And not only do we have to look at the truth, we have to look at the world through the truth. That's the difference between a formal kind of religion and vital Christianity. And if we look through them, if we look at the world through this truth, we will never be the same. Never! Now, what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord of the storm? I tell you, it means three things. It means he's holy, it means he's powerful, and it means he is our teacher. Uh, that's what it tells us here, so let's look at them briefly to set us up to meet him at the table. First of all, Jesus Christ is Lord of the storm. That means he's holy. If you look carefully, you will see that the people, the disciples, are not terrified until he shows up. 
It doesn't say anywhere they were terrified of the storm. Now, surely they were concerned. And we know from uh, other gospel accounts that Jesus saw them toiling out there. They, they couldn't make it in. They were concerned, but there's no talk about being terrified until Jesus shows up. Why aren't they terrified until he shows up? Because when he shows up, he's walking on the water. And as he walks on the water, he is, he is showing forth the fact that he is from somewhere else. They sense that they're in the presence of the supernatural. Some, they're, they're in the presence of something transcendently above them. They're in the presence of something from another world. And because of that, they react in terror because that is the natural human response to the supernatural. And what does Jesus do? What he does when he shows up is he says, it is I. Now, he does not actually say, it is I. That's the way it's translated. Literally, this is what he says. He says, don't be afraid, I am. It's a very unusual grammatical construction. He says, don't be afraid, ego, me." Therefore, he says, don't be afraid, I am. Now, it's translated, it is I, but that's because it really wouldn't sound right to our ears. That's not really what he's saying. He says, don't be terrified, I am. Now, there was another time in which somebody heard a terrifying presence say, I am. Moses, before the burning bush, heard God say, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. I will reveal my name to you. It's Yahweh, which literally means I am. What does I am mean? Why would God call himself I am? Because what he is saying is, I'm not like anything else that you've ever seen. I am. I have no beginning and I have no ending. There is no I was about me. And there's no I will be about me. I am. I can't change because I'm perfect. I need nothing. I'm independent on nothing. I am the unique God. I am self-sufficient. I am the Holy One. And you see, in the fury of the, uh, of the fire, Moses heard and grasped the holiness of God, and he hit the deck. And now comes Jesus Christ walking on the water, and in the fury of the water, he comes to his disciples and he says, I am, and they hit the deck. They're terrified. Now why? Because he is revealing himself as the transcendent Holy One, as the one from above, as the supernatural God, not a nice guy, not a great teacher, not a person full of God consciousness. I am God. Now, listen, you have to understand their response because in dealing with God, you have to understand this. Rudolf Otto, at the beginning of the 20th century, wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy, and he noted in all religions that men and women, when they get into the presence of the supernatural, have an ambivalent reaction. It's an approach avoidance reaction. It means on the one hand there's an attraction and on the other hand there's a repulsion. On the one hand they're, they're attracted, but on the other hand they're terrified. You can see it with children. They beg you to tell ghost stories. They beg you, tell me a ghost story. Let me watch that thing on TV. Let me watch that ghost story on TV. And when they watch it they say, why did you ever let me watch that? Why did you ever tell me about that? I can't go to bed now. The Bible though, is much more profound in talking and giving, giving to us examples of this approach avoidance thing that, that uh, Rudolf Otto calls numinous awe. The approach avoidance. 
I want to be near the supernatural. I want to be near God. I'm afraid of being near God. You have, you have, uh, you know, you have Isaiah who wants to see God and yet at the same time says, woe is me, I'm undone. He sees the holy God and he says, I am a, a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And you have Peter who earlier was in his position where he had been fishing all night. Jesus Christ comes into the boat, says, put your net in. He brings in enough fish in one casting of the net to sink the boat. Another supernatural feat, another evidence of Jesus' supernatural power. And what, is, what does Peter do? What does he say? Hey, you, what would you think a fisherman would say when he sees a boat full of fish? You, you'd think he'd say, Jesus, this is great! I can't believe it! I'm in! I won't have to fish for a month! Instead, what does he say? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He doesn't see the fish. He's experiencing numinous awe. He's in the presence of the holy. Now listen. The reason that this is true, Rudolf Otto didn't understand. Nobody understands. We just know it's true. But the Bible gives you a coherent explanation. And that explanation is this. There's two layers to our soul. Two slabs at the foundation of our soul. The first layer was laid down by God. He built us for the garden. And he made us to walk with him in the cool of the day. And that means our souls are built to relate to him like the moth to, a, to, to the light. Our, our souls relate to God the way the moth relates to the light, the way the bee relates to the flower, the way a beached fish relates to the water, the way a hungry stomach relates to food. We long, we yearn for the face of God. But on the other hand, there's, a, there's another layer, there's another slab, and we laid it down. Because we took the fact that God created us with immense powers, we're rational, personal beings, with freedom, we decided to live independently of God. We decided to live upon ourselves. We decided to live for ourselves. And because of that, when we decided to live in that way, we became traumatized by the holy. Here's why. We decided we were going to be our own creators. You go to the self-help, go to the bookstores, and you'll see all the modern ideologies that say, create your own reality. You can be whatever you want to be. That my, modern philosophies that are just confirming what the Bible says drives us at our heart. And that is, I want to be my own creator. I want to be my own God. So when we get near the presence of a real creator, it's like being awakened when you're sleepwalking. It's terrifying. We sense our weakness. We sense our dependence. And we don't want to believe it. That's the second slab. And don't you see... Whenever we get near the holy, it's gorgeous, but it's traumatic. We can't live with God, and we can't live without God. You see it when you get near somebody a whole lot more uh, perfect than you, be more beautiful than you, more talented than you, more gifted than you. You want to be near them, and at the same time, you hate them, because they show you up. But it's worse with God. Why do you think so many of you, on the one hand, are seeking him, and yet whenever you get near him, you get scared? Why? Because you say... If I give myself to him, maybe he won't come through. Maybe he'll ask me to do something I don't want to do. Maybe he'll embarrass me. What if he doesn't make all my dreams come true? What if he disappoints me? And so there you go. On the one hand, you're saying, I want him, but how can I keep control of my life? On the one hand, you say, I want him. That's the first slab. But on the other hand, you say, how do I keep control of my life? 
And guess what? You can't. You're trapped, but the trap is a trap of our own making. We want him, but on the other hand, we, we can't. We can't give up control, so we can't have him. But here's the solution. Will you see that the one that you need into the boat to take you to shore, the loving person, the only one that can take you to shore is a holy person. And that holy person is someone, like anyone who loves somebody, demands your perfection, demands your purity, demands your flourishing, wants to see you change, wants to see you grow. Any real love is holy love. A love that says, oh, I don't want to bother you. I just want you to be happy as you are. I never want you to be upset with me. That's codependency. Real love intervenes. Huh? Real love confronts. And therefore, real love is a holy love. You need a holy lover in your boat. You need a God who's loving but who's holy, who will confront, who will intervene, who will say, these things have got to change. You need to give up control. That's the reason why you're afraid to let him in the boat. I want him, but how can I keep control? And the answer is you can't. Jesus is holy. Secondly, we learn here that Jesus is powerful. Listen, this might be too obvious, so I'll just say it once. Jesus Christ is saying, I am Lord of this storm. In Psalm 29, we read about God. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. Hmm? The Lord sits enthroned above the flood. He is enthroned as king forever. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm that God. When you hear the thunder, that thunder is, is powerful, but it's a power on loan from me. Nothing in nature even has power, except it's a power on loan from me. So what is a hurricane to me, Jesus says? It's just a dirty drop of water. What is a hurricane to me? I laugh in the face of any power. And therefore, I have power over destruction, I have power over death, I have power over disorder. And you notice he doesn't only have power over the external universe, he has power over the internal universe because these people are scared. They're experiencing the greatest trauma you can experience. As they get in the presence of the holy, they sense their own creatureliness. They sense their smallness. They sense their weakness. And what does he do to the storm inside them? What does he say? It's me. Don't be afraid. And then it says they were willing to take him in. A word from Jesus... He can reveal himself to you in such a way that it can deal with the storm on the inside as well as the storm on the outside. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, you have me in your life. It doesn't matter how tangled things are. It doesn't matter how turbulent things are. It doesn't matter how stormy things are. I am Lord of the storm. I can bring beauty where there's tremendous ugliness. There's no such thing as indelible ugliness when I'm there. Hmm? Do you ever look at your life or you look at somebody else's life and you say it's too tangled? He says, I have a comb. I have an omnipotent comb. I have a divine comb. I am Lord over the disorder. I am Lord over the turbulence. I am Lord over the chaos. I am Lord of the storm. Not only the external universe storm, but the internal universe. It's me. Take me in. Jesus is a God of power. But thirdly, Jesus is your mentor. And this is where we have to leave it. But this is very important. The fact that Jesus is Lord of the storm tells us that he's holy and it tells us that he's powerful, but also it tells us 
that he puts his people through storms. Mark chapter 6, in which, um, in, when Mark talks about this particular incident, he makes it pretty clear that Jesus knew that they were going into a storm. He sends them into the storm. You see, it's a, quite a contrast because in the early part of the chapter, there you have Jesus stuffing them in a feast. And now he sends them off into a place of danger in which they're going to feel frail and a place where it looks like that they are bereft of his visible presence. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, there will be times in which he apparently will be sending you into danger and into places where he seems to be absent. Don't be startled. He's a mentor. He knows what he's doing. So the first thing is, don't be startled by the fact that he sends you into storms. But secondly, I want you to see how he helps you deal with storms. He doesn't, on the way out, what does he say? They're scared, right? And he's walking on the wall. What does he say? He says, don't be afraid. I just heard a weather report. It will be over soon. Some of you deal with your storms that way. You say, this too will pass. If I just hold on long enough, it'll go away. Every cloud has a silver lining. Now, you, you know, talk to yourself like that. You don't believe yourself. Try to say that to somebody else. That's cold comfort. Jesus Christ will never minimize the storm. What he'll do instead is maximize himself. He doesn't say, take heart. The storm isn't as bad as you think. Actually, the, the shallows are over here. We're not that far. Uh, I heard a weather report. It'll be over pretty soon. Instead, what does Jesus say? He says, take heart. It is I. He says, I want you to see who I am. I want you to see me as the I am. That's how you can deal with a storm. You know how often we, around the church we talk about idols? We say, what is an idol? An idol is a way for you to keep control of yourself, of your own life. You worship it, you bow down to it. It's something you center your life on, you build your life on it, and you get your meaning and you get your self-worth and you get your joy and your security out of it. Let's change the metaphor for a minute. Why does Jesus send, your life or send uh, storms into your life? Because let's not think about these things as idols for a minute. Let's think of them as life rafts. A life raft is a great thing because on a life raft, you are in charge. If you're on a big ship, you're probably going to have to serve. You're going to have to be a sailor. You're going to, have to be a, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to work for the captain. And therefore, the Bible tells us, all human beings like to find life rafts. We build life rafts. What are those things? They are things that we build our lives on, and we are in charge. Jesus sends storms into your life to show you the inadequacy of those life rafts so that you'll climb aboard him. Look, look at how often that's exactly what storms do. In the book of Job, Satan comes and says, look at, look at, look at this Job, he says to God. Look at Job. You say he's your servant, I say he's using you. He's not serving you, he's using you to serve him. He's not serving you, he is, he's manipulating you. What is his real foundation, Satan says? He's actually building his life. What holds his life up in the waters of life? What holds it up? It's his wealth, it's his popularity. Look at how popular he is. Look at how wealthy he is. Look at how happy he is. Those are are the things that he really worships. Those are the things that hold him up in the water of life. Get rid of those, God, and you'll see that he'll curse you to his face. And so what happens is if you look carefully in the book of Job, God sends storms. He sends a storm that knocks down his house and kills his family. A storm comes in also 
a lightning storm that kills all of Job's livestock and destroys, therefore, his wealth. And though Job struggles tremendously, in the end, Job climbs aboard the Lord. And he says, all right, Lord, your smile is what I live for. Your word is what I live for. Your riches are what I live for. And as a result, he becomes a stable person because he climbs aboard something that can't sink. Look at, look at, the, uh, look at the parable of the, man, the men who built two houses. Jesus talks about a house built on the sand and a house built on the rock. How do you know what your real foundation is? Again, the storms, Jesus says. A storm comes and one of them will fall and the other one will not. If you build your life on beauty, well, there's the storm of aging. If you build your life on your career, there's the storm of the recession, or there's a storm of superior competition. If you build your life on true love, there's the storm of rejection. There's the storm of singleness. There's a storm of no dates. Don't you see? Those storms show you your foundation. Those storms show you your life raft. Those storms show you what you really are relying on to hold you up. Why does Jesus send storms into the life? Because he wants you not to be unstable people. He doesn't want you to be dashed about by every wind. He says, climb into me. Climb up into me. Of course you won't be in charge. In a life raft, everybody can be a captain of your own life raft. You come in here, I'll be your captain. But wait till you see how safe it is here. Build your life on me. It is I. Don't be afraid. I am the God. Make me your God. I am. Now, here's one last thing. If you want Jesus to be your mentor, you've got to expect storms. You've got to see the purpose in storms is to get you to see that he's God and no one else. That's what he deals. That's how he helps his apostles deal with the storm. That's how he'll help you deal with the storm. But lastly, you've got to make sure you realize that he, he will handle every storm differently. You know, the last storm that they were in, what did he do? He got up and he said, peace, be still. Now that's service. You know, you say, Lord, I got a storm in my life. And occasionally he says, oh, okay, peace, be still. And the problem's gone. In this case, he keeps the storm there. And he shows his power above it. And even though we're not told about it in this particular book, it's in Mark and in Matthew we're told that, that Peter gets out of the boat and walks. As long as he keeps his eye on Jesus, he walks on the water too, which means Jesus' power over the storm is transferred to Peter as long as Peter keeps his eyes on Jesus. What does this mean? It means sometimes Jesus gets rid of storms, and other times he says, I'm not getting rid of the storm. I'm going to raise the level of your maturity to meet the storm. I'm going to show you how to walk through it. I'm going to show you how to walk over it, but I'm not going to get rid of it. He does that. Sometimes you're calm and Jesus brings into your life fear. Sometimes you're afraid and Jesus brings into your life calm. He knows what he's doing. Sometimes he needs to wake you up to who you are, deepen you, show you who you are. Other times he needs to comfort and calm you. And, and he is holy and he is powerful, but he's a mentor. He's out to make you what you really want to be, a person of joy and yet so empathetic and easily touched by grief, a person of courage and conviction, but at the same time so approachable and tender and understanding and flexible, a person of fearlessness and yet humility, 
love and purity. Fierce joy. You want to be like that, don't you? Jesus Christ came and suffered not that we might not suffer, but that when we suffer, we might become like him. Wasn't it Elizabeth Elliot that said that? He suffered not that we might not suffer, but that when we suffer, we might become like him. Listen, you need to put yourself in his hands, and you need to do it this way. Believer, friends, Christian friends, when, during storms, the worst thing you can do is go downstairs and go to sleep. You've got to hold on to the, to the, uh, the rudder. You've got to hold on to the steering wheel. And when the storm is over, you'll find the wind, if you've hold, held on to the rudder, the wind will have gotten you, gotten you closer to your destination than you ever would have been if the storm hadn't come up. What does that mean? The Bible calls it waiting on the Lord. It means obey what you know. It means trust in Him. Trust that He's a mentor. Trust that He's powerful. And trust that He's holy. It means you don't give up. It means you don't go downstairs and say, well, I, don't, I can't handle this anymore. You obey what you know. You do the next thing. But friends, if there's anybody here who says, I don't even know if, that makes, if, if, if any of this is true for me. I don't know if I'm a Christian at all. Here's what you do to become a Christian. You have to admit that you are as helpless to please God as those apostles were to get to the other side of the shore. The only way they could get to the shore was not through their own rowing. They couldn't get there. They couldn't toil. They couldn't make it. Their own efforts weren't enough. They had to take in the one who was holy, the one who was powerful. Jesus is your refuge. Jesus is the one. Take him in. Say, I'm scared. I know this means I'll lose control, but you're my Lord and my King. It's the only way I'll get to shore. His love in times past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. By prayer, let me wrestle. Then he will perform with Christ in the vessel. I smile at the storm. Let's pray. Our Father, we go to the table, and here's all we ask, that as we confess our sins, we'll see that only you can make us holy. As we come to the table, we'll see that what Jesus Christ has done is provided a refuge for us from the storm. We cannot make the shore without what he has done. We now rest on him, and we ask that you would help us to appropriate that as we take the bread and as we take the cup. Help us to live that. Help us to relive that. Lord, form yourself in us afresh. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.